underground economy was just really great for me. And it's great for anybody, even if you don't have an academic interest in cybercrime, it teaches you new things. It gets you in touch with new people and it gives you a new way of thinking about this area and thinking about how cybercrime is becoming more complex and also how it's becoming more simple in some ways. This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monnier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey everyone, and thanks for listening in to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today's episode is particularly special as we dive into the power of education and public-private partnerships in cybersecurity. Today, I'm happy to welcome two distinguished guests, Mr. Steve Santorelli, Chief of Staff and Team Cymru Fellow at Team Cymru, and also the driving force behind Team Cymru's RISE events and Underground Economy Conferences, which I'll uh, let Steve elaborate more on that in a second, and Dr. Miranda Bruce, a postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Sociology, University of Oxford, and recipient of last year's RISE Scholarship. So we have a call full of fellows. We're all fellows today. <laughs> in 2008, Team Cymru launched the Underground Economy Conference. It's our annual flagship conference with about 500 attendees. Uh, it takes place every year in September. In 2016, we launched three annual smaller RISE conferences. It stands for a Regional Internet Security Event. And these events are a global gathering of cybersecurity professionals where they can learn more about cyber threats and critical investigations uh, and take advantage of networking opportunities. So Miranda, uh, you were the first recipient of an Underground Economy Conference Scholarship in 2023. Uh, we're excited to hear uh, how that all went for you today. Yeah, so, I'm excited to talk about it. It was one of it was one of my top events of the year, and it's awesome. December, so I'm allowed to say that. Awesome. And uh, us being your hosts, we just assume you're only telling us that because it's true, not because you want to flatter us. So <laughs> no, kidding, of course. So before we get started, though, why don't the two of you tell us a little bit about yourselves? Miranda, why don't you go ahead and, and go first? Yeah, great. Thank you. So I'm a postgraduate fellow with the Department of Sociology at Oxford. And really what I, me and my research team have been focusing on over the past few years is investigating the geography of cybercrime. So that's where physically offenders are located across the world. Because once we start to know that, once we start to understand where these cybercrime hubs are, then we can start directing policy resources, research resources towards these particular countries that need it most. It'll also reveal a bit more about the human aspect of cybercrime. So the local forces that determine which countries are cybercrime hubs and which ones aren't and why that might be. And on top of doing this work for Oxford, also in my spare time, I'm a lecturer in cybersecurity and specifically cybersecurity leadership at the University of New South Wales in Australia. Nice. Very nice. So Miranda, sorry to put you on the spot, but I'd love to have you back where we could talk just about your research in particular on the geographics of cyber. I'll pitch that on you right now. Now it's recorded forever if you shoot us down or if you agree. Um, but I would love to have you back to our listeners. We do try to be respectful of your time. Uh, so I'm not going to dive into what is an amazing topic right there. Incredibly interesting, at least to me personally. So to everyone out there, you heard her nod her head. She said she'd be back. So uh, so we'll work, we'll work on scheduling that. So Steve, tell us about yourself, sir. Thanks, Dave. So my background is law enforcement. I joined the Metropolitan Police Service in London in 1994, uh, an awfully long time ago. And at the time, I had the intention of becoming a psychoam detective, but back in those days, there was no easy route in. You had to 
do your time as a uniform police officer, and then you have to work your way up through various stages of being a, a formal detective, and then you get to, to move across. In about 1999, I became a detective sergeant, moved across to the, the uh, Specialist Crime Directorate, Scotland Yard, uh, which is the headquarters uh, of that department on the computer crime unit, which was a fantastic time because this was so early on. This was prior to the National High Tech Crime Unit, the CRH and Organized Crime Agency, or the, the National High Tech was it the, the National Crime Agency now does a lot of the particularly high-value cybercrime investigations out there, along with regional specialist groups. So we had primacy for the entire country. So we had some amazing cases that we were able to work on. And then I left in 2004, as many former law enforcement folks find that there was uh, just an amazing opportunity that went over to Microsoft to do very similar things. Uh, bonnet attribution, malware investigations, that kind of stuff. I did three years there at Microsoft in Seattle, and then uh, I've been at Tim Cymru for 17 years now. Wow. So, uh, yeah, quite the long time. I hope I make it that long, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, 1994, I didn't know crime was invented yet. That's uh, remarkable. You must be one of the <laughs> early uh, founders of those efforts. Actually, we I think the Committee of Crime Unit at Scotland Yard was formed back in the 80s, and we had... At the time, the legislation we used was the Computer Machine Sector, I want to say 1984 or something. Wow. Yeah. They were ahead of the game. Yeah. And there's, it's all archived on the internet. There's some amazing detectors that that, uh, blazed the trail well before me. Yeah. Very cool. So, Steve, tell us some about Rise Underground Economy. In particular, you know, what inspired them? Where did the idea come from? So, it's, it's an interesting question. I remember working with the families of Team Cymru back when I was a detective, and they would hand me three or four pages of IRC-based net logs. And I remember looking at them and not really understanding what on earth I was looking at, because there really wasn't much training at the time. And then it became quite apparent as I left law enforcement and moved into this industry that there was this massive chasm between industry and law enforcement. There really was no discussions going on there. Obviously, law enforcement are the only folks that have the remit to do uh, arrests and put uh, silver bracelets on people and throw them in jail. And industry at the time were the only folks that really understood how these crimes were committed and how you could investigate them and where the evidence uh, lay. So we originally came up with the Only Bad Economy Conference with the intention of trying to put a bridge over, over that chasm uh, and just get folks talking. So we originally decided to have 30-minute uh, case studies where everybody can get together in a very secure environment, you know, airport-style matter detectors, invitation only. We, we spent a lot of time, and we still do, making sure that only the right people get in. But people could share not only good investigations that, that were successful, but also things that perhaps didn't go quite as well, things that they would perhaps do slightly differently in the next final. And that came very, very successful. We also decided to have some workshops, uh, slightly longer workshops. And primarily that was to assist the law enforcement folks for coming in because they're not just going to a conference, they're going to get free training. But in reality, it really is about the networking. The fact that we have a conference is just the, the reason that people can justify the travel and coming along, but the networking, the swapping of business cards, the actual yeah, so the water cooler, the corridor type chats is really where the value comes in. Okay. So other than Miranda as a guest, what's the usual audience for one of these events look like and uh, what do they get out of it? So it's 
We try and strive for around 15% of the delegates from the law enforcement field, a smattering of, of academics, maybe 5%, something like 15% from the banks, financial services, institutions, and the remainder are folks like us in the information security business, but also cybercrime specialists within industry, so energy companies, that, that kind of stuff. They get a great deal out of it because it is a fairly exclusive event, and we spend a lot of time making sure that we have the people that are actually at the call face, the people that are actually doing the investigation themselves, and that's proven to be particularly helpful. We've done about 35 of these now since we started them, and the reason we started doing these smaller regional ones was because whilst the Alabama Economy Conference, the big flagship event, has about 500 people you know, three or four days. That's where you know a lot of the sponsorship money goes towards. We found that on occasion there were folks coming along, particularly from law enforcement, that were very you know seasoned, uh, experienced, accomplished folks, but they weren't necessarily the people that were doing the investigation themselves. So we decided to try and take the event to the regions. So we've been to. Kenya, we've been to Indonesia, we've been to uh, Thailand, Hong Kong, all, all over the place. Um, a lot of the South American events as well. I think the first riders we did was actually in Chile. Those are smaller events, couple of days. So one day of case studies, one day of workshops, around 200 people, easier to organize. And we normally partner with a, a certain team or, or, some, or some law enforcement folks out there. And that's designed to make it easier for people to travel because they're not having to travel across an ocean and all the, you know, they can get a train there in many cases. Mm-hmm. So those breakdowns where you were talking about 15% law enforcement and, and so on, are those targets? Like when you're putting together the program, are these like logistical efforts where you're like specifically looking to reach a certain percentage of the audience to be of uh, a certain background, or is that just how it happened to be? Tell us some about the effort to try to build up the right audience for these events. The challenge has always been to get law enforcement to come along. Team Cumbria is not particularly well-known entity. There's a lot of explaining how come, you know, where's the cash? This is a free conference you invited me to. It doesn't really make sense. And the problem with law enforcement is there's a lot of turnover. Law enforcement gets qualified, trained up, get a little bit of experience, and they immediately get poached by by private industry. And that happens in first world countries as well as third world countries. There's also a lot of turnover in that a lot of law enforcement officers traditionally have to rotate through different squads. So you might be on a computer some kind of investigation squad for a while, then you'll be on a robbery squad, then you'll have to cycle through to a stolen vehicle squad or something like that. And then you've got the other events like every four years, you lose a great deal of secret service from the cybercrime community because they have to go up and do uh, presidential candidate or potential candidate protection duties. And that takes about a year as well. So you're continually having to reinvent your brand, if you like, to law enforcement. So law enforcement is always the challenge. So we strive for a 10, 15% of law enforcement where we can. And frankly, everybody else, well, there's not going to be a, a very long wait in this. It's not normally people that have been to these events before really love it. They spread the word and they really want to try and come along again. It means that people have to take my phone calls during the, during the year. <laughs> awesome. So- so, Steve, I think it would be a very, very interesting discussion as well, have you on in the future to talk about kind of what that day in the life looks like. I would imagine, uh, and again, not to totally derail our conversation today, but I would imagine that law enforcement having to pivot 
focuses like that, that means they have to like shift to a whole new set of statutes that they have to be looking for and things like that. I would imagine that the mental exercise to be law enforcement in those shoes would be something that people would be interested to hear about. So there he is. He nodded. Everyone, everyone listening, uh, <laughs> he nodded. So he'll be back. Uh, cool. So that's how, that's how we work it here, Steve, on uh, uh, future cyber risk. The, the risk was you nodding on camera. So no, just kidding. So Miranda, Steve has told us some about the events and kind of, you know, the history of going into it. You're one of the folks that could tell us about what it's like to attend. So first, why don't you tell us, how did you hear about the sponsorship program uh, in the event and what motivated you to apply? So firstly, what motivated me to apply was the excellent reputation of underground economy from the cybercrime experts that I know and also, and that's in industry and law enforcement and also in academia. So all of these different sectors know about underground economy and it's, they know about how exclusive it is and everyone I've ever talked to has been, has really enjoyed it. So exactly what Steve was just saying, that is the actual reputation of underground economy. I can confirm as someone who does not work for Team Cymru, but it's really known as one of the only places in the world where all of the best cybercrime investigators, intelligence officers, and other experts are all in the same place for three or four days. And it's also known for hosting an incredibly interesting set of talks about practitioners uh, and ongoing cases, which is part of, I understand, why underground economy is so exclusive, is that when you go in, you're not allowed to talk about any of the talks that happen, or you're only allowed to talk about the ones that they say you can talk about. Otherwise, it's all TLP red, I think, is the mm -hmm. classification. Yeah. So it's my motivation was to have access to the people there and also to the content. So better understanding what cybercrime practitioners, well, investigators, not the cyber criminals, but these practitioners, what they actually do and what it kind of looks like. And that's it was also incredibly important for my research. So one of the things that I'm doing with my research team to investigate the geography of cybercrime is we are running an expert survey with the top cybercrime investigators and officers in the world and asking them about their expert opinions on cybercrime hubs uh, and what they're like. So I wanted to go so that I could talk to some of these people and also potentially recruit them for my survey. As for how I heard about it, I actually heard about it directly from Steve. So I knew that Team Cymru's other events were really focused on inclusion of organizations and nation states and individuals who couldn't otherwise attend big cyber conferences. Exactly what Steve was just saying. And I'd been in contact with Steve about my research before. So I actually just happened to send him an email asking about whether there are any funding opportunities for underground economy. And very happily, there was. I think I just emailed him at exactly the right time. So that was really lucky on my part, but I know I wasn't surprised to hear that Team Cymru had decided to introduce the scholarship because of all of their efforts in inclusion across the world. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, the scholarship itself is funded by our founder, Rabbi Rob Thomas. Team Cymru obviously facilitates the event, you know, but Rob is personally the driving force uh, behind the scholarship. It sounds like that was amazing timing on your part uh, to be talking to Steve when the idea came up. That's for sure. So what would you say are kind of the most significant takeaways from attending? Well, I would say 
There were a couple big ones for me in, in terms of my personal research. So again, better understanding the geography of cybercrime. I got an incredibly good look into more of the details about how top investigators actually go about investigating what they find and how they make sense of what they find. And also how they go about sharing their insights and their data with other individuals and other organizations. Mm -hmm. Because as is something that you probably talk about a lot on this podcast, and as Steve was just saying, being able to sort of connect with people and share and make those connections so that you can do your job better mm -hmm. is something that it sounds like doesn't happen enough in this sort of level of cybercrime investigation. It really does not. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the things that as an academic, I think that you bring is the example of the success of sharing. So I, I came out of academia as well. I came out of high performance computing uh, at a Big Ten university. And that's the first thing I noticed when I came out of academia into the private sector was nobody wants to share their notes. Everybody thinks, I guess, that their market advantage is so fragile that letting somebody know about an incident is somehow gonna upturn your cart and you know now your competitors in business know all about you or I, I don't really know, but that's there seem to be very guarded around sharing incident details, which is really crazy if you think about it. And and so what we see, I think, as a result is really indicator stream largely just comes out of vendors and vendors aren't getting attacked like that. It's regular people who are. And I always question a vendor when you get the IOC page at the end of their report, is that like, let's say the vendor, because you know the, a lot of the vendors that provide this material, a lot of them make security products, right? So if their product work, how did they write that paper? Did you ever wonder that? That's uh, to me uh, was always like how to turn a product failing into a press release is turn it into a white paper. But the end result though, is that we don't really know about adversaries who are attacking victims. We know about adversaries who got caught by some vendor and if you think about the potential bias for that, it's outrageous. But in the private sector, they don't do like academics do, right? Like in, in academia, when you discover something new, right, you share that information like right away. In fact, that's the accolade, right, is who shared it first uh, for the most part. But anyway, sorry to derail you. But I, I also noticed that coming from academia into the private sector, I noticed there's not a lot of sharing. Forgive me for jumping in there, but that was definitely one of the, the big takeaways I took when I joined the Computer Crime Unit. People just didn't want the bad publicity. They would rather just practically eat the loss and yeah. not bad publicity. And it resulted in this you know circular situation where everybody became a victim. It was everybody's turn eventually. And now you have these mandatory reporting laws in many cases, which is forcing people, giving them an excuse to actually be able to share a little bit more, which is a, a big step in the right direction. Yeah, no, super agreed. So, Miranda, based on your experience, what advice would you give to future attendees of a RISE conference so that they can make the most of it? That's a great question, because I went into it kind of, I guess, naively assuming that I would be one of the only academics and that I would just be the big nerd in the corner, sort of hoping that anybody would talk to me. Uh, but that's absolutely not how it went. It was everybody that was extremely friendly and was actually really interested in talking. So, which is actually kind of, novel for me as an academic, because sometimes at academic conferences, people want to really want to share what they've done, but they, they're not always really into the social networking aspect. So this was a really great combination of content uh, and also of networking and, and also friendships. I have a few friends now that I talk to all the time uh, that I met at Underground Economy. Uh, but as for advice for how to get the most out of it, go to as many talking sessions as you can. 
they're all going to be incredibly interesting. And if you walk in and you realize that it's not really your cup of tea or you might already know about it, then you can go out and there's always people milling around and you can talk to them and they'll all want to talk. So absolutely attend all of the sessions. I didn't end up going to any of the practical sessions, but everybody that I talked to. So there there are workshops uh, as well as just sort of some more traditional lectures. And everybody that I talked to who went the workshop said that they really enjoyed it and they can't wait to use some of the skills that they learned. So if you can go to some of the workshops, do. And also there are a couple of social events that are organized formally and informally around underground economy. And all of those are also really great because these people, because everybody who's at underground economy is really passionate. So they want to talk to you in a formal context, but they'll also be really interested in talking about sort of the less formal stuff outside of the conference. So the kinds of conversations that happened over coffee breaks were just as interesting as the conversations that happened afterwards at drinks at the bar. So I really, so yeah, that's that's my recommendation is to really do as much of an underground economy as you can because you'll get an enormous amount out of it. Absolutely. Yeah, get a bunch of cyber nerds drinking and you'll definitely <laughs> yeah. learn of some interesting <laughs> hobbies you didn't know people had. Uh, oh yeah and and not just the person that you're talking to you just didn't know people did those things so yeah <laughs> i think there was a big brazilian jiu-jitsu contingency there, uh there at yeah. yeah that's that's what i've heard yeah so this is a question for both of you really because you guys have different a very similar final thought i guess but you guys came to the because you guys have said very similar things about the event right about the value of it but you guys come from different ends of it so i'm interested to hear your guys's take on this and steve will go ahead and start with you but partnering with academia as a company right where that's academia is always seen as like this bottomless pit uh you throw time and money into it and if you're lucky you know one in a hundred of these students will turn out to make something great right that's kind of like perceived as academia life and in particular in the private sector right everybody thinks oh you know those academics will will take all the time and money but uh you know not end up giving you something so i'm interested to see your take coming from law enforcement and having seen kind of how academia has it changed over time more I, I would argue kind of meeting the needs of society right to help us understand this problem I'm curious to know what your thoughts are first we'll go with Steve what do you think of the realities and then the potential of partnerships between private public sector and academia and how it goes to address kind of cybercrime and how we but not just overcome it, right? Like patching systems and, and remediations is one thing, but how we talk about going on and like mitigating these factors and, and whatnot. How do you see that collaboration, if you will, uh, private, public, academia? So I think there's things that we've evolved in the recent decades. There's obviously a huge number of academics working in the sector that simply weren't doing that before. And the beauty of that is they have the ability to do pure research. They're not beholden to shareholders. They don't have a hidden agenda. They don't have to make a profit from their work. They have the freedom and flexibility to do amazing things that no one else could do. The other great thing about academics is they're really um, favored in terms of being expert witnesses. So judges like them because of the, for similar reasons, they're seen as more independent. But also I think that if you look at the way investigations have evolved, you now have a lot of trust groups you didn't have a couple of years ago. You have these massive global task forces, in particular of law enforcement, you know, you need to be a diplomat as well as a, a detective. And having that pure research and the, the frankly, some of the smartest people in the, on the planet 
being part of those task forces, I think is particularly useful and it's is really bearing fruit right now. Yeah. Miranda, what's your thoughts? So I have two main thoughts specifically about the role of sort of the higher education sector and innovation in sort of cybersecurity. Uh So firstly, I'm sorry, Steve and I do keep agreeing, but I think that just means that we're both on exactly the same really good wavelength. So clearly, you should come work for Oxford, Steve. But yeah, firstly, what academia can do and is really, it has time. It has the time that cybersecurity experts, even the ones who are not right in the middle of investigations, academics have the time that these experts don't have. And that makes an enormous difference on top of sort of the lack of ulterior motivations and things like that. And the lack of it being, it's the fact that it's not profit driven. It means that we can investigate questions that everybody else who is really interested in answering them can't answer because of a lack of time and other resources. And that is really a strength that we have in academia. And it means that I can do, we can do projects like the one that I'm doing. We've been running this survey and looking into the geography of cybercrime for years now. And we're actually just wrapping up the second run of the survey right as we speak. It closes tomorrow. So we'll have longitudinal data and we'll be able to pull out some results from that that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And secondly, this is more sort of talking to the education sector, but as a lecturer in cybersecurity, I can tell you that the market is really starting to be finally starting to become really saturated with university level cybersecurity courses, right? There are masters, there are graduate diplomas, there are bachelors, and that's something that's really ramping up, especially in Australia right now. But what the majority of them do is they teach mostly technical skills or they don't teach much outside of that. And so what academia and these technical skills, although you'll be learning them at a very high level if you take them at a university rather than some online offering, what these universities do is they, if you really allow them to expand that cybersecurity course and program, then again, you have the time to have more, for example, sociological understanding of cybercrime. You can gain leadership skills, which is something that I teach. And this kind of understanding of how cybercrime works and also how cybersecurity works, because these are two different things. They need each other to exist, but they are two different areas of research and areas of learning is cybercrime versus cybersecurity, which is something that I'm really interested in, actually. And again, that's one another reason why underground economy is so interesting is because you get the intersection of cybersecurity and cybercrime. And you see how these two things cross over and when they don't. But You need more of this context around cybercrime and how it works in order to understand the role of cybersecurity leaders in defending against threats uh, and also anticipating them. So if you go, the role of university in sort of mitigating threats is really to teach people because it's all about people. Cybercrime is all about people and cybersecurity is all about people. And the role of higher education is to create people who understand the threat landscape and can respond to it really well. So I think for any for really innovation to happen in mitigating threats, then you need better context. And that's what university does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think, I guess, by the way, it is so very hard to not just like totally go off the rails here and talk just about this with you, because this is a very interesting conversation. But I promise to, this is what the fourth time I've said this now, but I promise to not totally derail us here. But I would be very keen to hear your thoughts on the technical versus, I guess, societal perspectives on that. Because I mean, right now, right, this is like, and I know technology isn't new per se anymore, but it 
largely is. And we're like, as cyber investigators, right? We're like the first gunshot victim or the first gunshot experts, right? Like those people were in demand at one point because nobody had ever seen anybody be shot by a gun before because the firearms were a new technology and no one had encountered that before. So you didn't really know how to treat a wound of somebody who had been, you know, shot by something moving at feet per second at a cauterizing temperature. And, you know, it was all this new stuff to violence, right? And what we did, we don't all walk around in body armor every day. Well, I mean, I know in some parts of the world people do, but most of us in the on the planet don't walk around in body armor, right? We solved much of the potential for random firearm violence, you know, in these societal ways. We like figured out how to, you know, turn the wild, wild west and a super American example, right? But once upon a time in the Western United States, like you would look at somebody sideways and they'd shoot you. And then they would just throw you on the road. And if nobody came to pick you up, well, you know, eventually the coyotes or somebody would eat you and that's it. And that was all that there was. Right. So huge potential for problem. That's kind of how cyber is. Right. Like in particular, like the late days of like Windows XP, if you guys recall, like there was a time when you couldn't even install Windows XP because it would be compromised before the installation finished because there was so much out there, but nobody knew how to defend it, you know? So, but anyway. Very, very interesting conversation. I would love to have with you, Miranda, about in particular what you're finding, you know, and as we shift more towards kind of understanding the stuff, because keep in mind, right, technology that is confusing to us is not to like a 12 year old right now, like a person who's 12 right now in 10 years time, we'll know more than we probably combined understand about technology and not because they're technologists, but because they just are completely around it constantly, you know. That's an interesting point. Certainly the people that I used to be part of the arrest teams for, they were often teenagers. So they had these incredible technical skills, of course, but they didn't have that life experience to realize the implications of what they were doing. So their skills were only amazing relative to ours as older people. Absolutely. To them, it's naturally not amazing. In fact, they're just using it, you know, like, I don't know if if you've ever watched, I had a friend of mine has a daughter who took my phone briefly. I was like going to show her a picture and she was like, oh, I'm going to sign it to a contact. And in like four and a half seconds had already like knew how to use my phone better than I know how to use it. You know what I'm saying? In like two seconds. And that's now is this person's daughter a technical genius? No. You know what I'm saying? She just lives with a phone attached to her hand 24 hours a day, you know, and just knows that stuff. And that's what I think we're in for, right? Like as at some point, all the youth, you know, will be like completely familiar with APIs. They'll be familiar with all this stuff because that'll be what they did their eighth grade science fair project on. You know, it'll be, you know, how to sort Ajax, yeah, you know, how to how to sort JSON objects, uh, you know, as fast as you can. Anyway. The stuff that they don't know, they're going to be able to rely on AI as well. That's so right. Which is looking particularly interesting. Yeah, that's right. Interesting. And and good for us on the good guy scene, right? So, Steve, tell us, let's get back. We'll talk about more about UE and RISE. So, Steve, what's the long-term vision for these events? And are there any notable places that you'd like to go to that you haven't scheduled to go to yet? That's a great question. We want to continue these events and not really change the format because they seem to be operated quite well, but we won't bring in new blood. It's very, very difficult to break into this community, especially you know post-COVID. So bringing in people that are having uh, you know, 
perhaps have less experience that need to get into these communities. It's a great way of leapfrogging over a bunch of requirements to get right in the heart of things. We also want to improve the scholarship program. So we're seeking formal sponsors for the scholarship program. You can get us at events.com and you can look on our website and have all the information there. But we're looking for ideally some corporate sponsors. We have a couple of paper links where individuals can contribute to smaller amounts, but we want to expand the number of scholars that we're able to fund to come along. And in terms of where we're going, the next one is going to be with Sir Latvia and Riga Latvia in January. Their applications are open, so anyone can go to our website and apply for that. Then in Q2 next year, we're looking to go somewhere in Africa, and then hopefully we'll be back in uh, France for the underground economy in 2024. After that, in Q4, we're looking at Singapore and then Scandinavia for the first event of 2025. And Miranda, I believe we're actually looking tentatively at Australia for some event in 2025. If you come to Australia, I will be there. I have a spare room. If you need somewhere to stay, I will. I would absolutely love that. I think we just need a jiu-jitsu uh, place as well. If you ask. Oh yeah, no, don't worry. Australians are very, very into contact sports. So yeah, and in their case, they just do it wherever they're at the grocery store, yeah, exactly. parking lot, whatever. <laughs> I mean, we we live with kangaroos, so we have to be prepared. That's right, and crocodiles and alligators both, right? Yeah, I think, uh, I think Australia and Florida are the only two places that have both. And so I think and maybe we're not going to Australia after all that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, well, Steve, you named Balmy Regalafia for January and then Scandinavia the following January. So for what it's worth, I'd say, uh, yeah, you probably uh, we'd be OK with Australia. I think that'd be OK. Well, Scandinavia is always a problem because we, we tend to actually get a ferry and put people on, on the cruise liner and it goes out of the lady from Finland, it's another country, are back again. And it's great because you have a captive audience. People can't actually go out to a bar outside. They have to go to the bar on the ship. And so you tend to have a, a slightly different atmosphere. Yeah. So there you have it, folks. Oh. The reason why everyone was so nice at the event that Miranda was speaking of is because they're stuck on the boat. <laughs> <laughs> so Miranda, Steve mentioned scholarship sponsoring you as the first recipient of such an award. What advice or what kind of feedback could you have for listeners who might be considering, you know, if their company uh, would be game to sponsor something like that? So again, I have a couple of responses to that. Firstly, the really pragmatic one, because this is kind of like a pragmatics problem, is what underground economy does is it creates a lot of value for the people who attend because it allows you to create these face-to-face connections. Because what I've discovered So as part of my survey, as part of my research, I'm contacting a lot of the top experts in cybercrime, and there are both more and fewer of these experts than I kind of expected. But again, that's that's another that's another podcast. But really what what I've discovered is that cybercrime experts are not very good at answering emails and it takes a lot of follow up and follow through. So what underground economy offers is an opportunity to corner these experts and to get them to have a coffee with you and to get to know them. And the sort of value of face-to-face connections that you make is really, you can't duplicate it in any other way. And like I said, I made friends, but I also have a much bigger network of really important contacts. And 
I mean, the kind of value that I've gotten from attending Underground Economy is I actually directly, because of Underground Economy, I was able to attend another conference that I actually just came back from, uh, eCrime, which was held in Spain this year. And that's hosted by the Anti-Fishing Working Group and kind of a little bit similar to Underground Economy. They focus more on fishing, but it was an incredibly interesting conference and from which I have now made more connections and have plans to attend other events next year. So mm-hmm. these kinds of connections only really happen really, or they, they happen most easily in person, in face-to-face. And if you were an organization, then you'd have different ways of kind of attaching maybe money value to those connections. But that's really the biggest thing about attending Underground Economy and sponsoring people to go is it creates an enormous amount of value. And the kinds of connections that are made, they might not directly or immediately add value to your own organization or your own interests or goals, but it contributes to the general kind of richness of the community and how it all works together. So there's a sort of direct value that comes from it and also an indirect value that's really important for keeping the cybersecurity community thriving. And then the other thing that I would say to sponsors is probably that it's just a really nice thing to do. I mean, for someone like me, I work for Oxford, but I work remotely from Australia. And so my opportunities for being able to go and make these connections and also experience more about this area that I'm really fascinated by, it's actually quite limited. So the cybersecurity community in Australia is quite good. It's quite strong, but it doesn't, we're very far away from from everybody else. Mm -hmm. So being able to like, we don't get really big names that come very often. And although the events here are quite large sometimes, it's being able to travel across the world and to learn more and to meet new people is incredibly important to keeping the kind of community here in Australia thriving as well. Mm -hmm. So for sponsors, uh, if you sponsor somebody to go, especially from a country where it's really difficult to leave or it's really, it's really expensive or there are border security issues, then providing that sponsorship, it opens so many doors. So it's incredibly, incredibly useful and it's a kind thing to do. So that's what I would say. Awesome. Yeah, I would add for listeners, I'm typically one of, I kind of go as Steve's wingman for the events. He's the MC and, and prime host, but I typically go as his, you know, wing person. So, and I stand a lot of times at the registration desk because that's, uh, tends to be where Steve has me, uh, is vetting folks who are like late arrivals, people who, you know, register at the last minute, things like that. And one of the things that I have overheard more than once was, I don't know what the right word is, not relief, but where people were very pleased to see who the sponsors were for our events and that they see that logo. When they see the logo on the banner, because we do like a thank you for our sponsors, we will be doing thank you for our sponsors to the scholarship. We'll be recognizing those uh, sponsors as well, uniquely and and independent from the overall conference. um, But people see those things. And now that company is perceived as, and I don't mean this like as in the other people are not this, but they see these people as do-gooders, right? Like they see like, oh, the companies that have their logos on this board are why we're able to have this no cost conference. It's why I'm able to come and see all of my peers. It's why, you know, they come back every year. And people, when we first started the event years back, because we did this all ourselves without sponsorship for years and uh, still put on the event and all that. And I think Steve can attest to this, but people were demanding 
for the opportunity to sponsor something with the event. Uh, so we're really hoping that with a scholarship sponsorship avenue, that even more folks come onto that, right? Because instead of just their logo on it, like you said, they get to know that they've done something good, right? Like, because now you're going to be out in the world knowing those things, uh, go back to Australia, teach new students, you know, and just like that, we've had a big force multiplier. So that's really, really good stuff to hear. And sorry for our listeners also, like we didn't like, you know, put Miranda up to it uh, to come talk about the benefits of sponsorship. So, well, based on their response, Miranda, you may or may not come back next year. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> you're right. There, there, are very, there are very limited opportunities for companies to demonstrate in a non-overly public way. You're, yeah. you're reaching the right demographic, people that need to know about your services. And it's a no-sales event, but you also get some guaranteed seats as a sponsor. So, you know, it's yeah. Yeah, what's people. that international organization that does the charity every year? They partner with companies and people can redirect part of their paychecks to it. I've worked a couple places. We had it in the Marine Corps, U.S. Marine Corps. We had it at Indiana University. I've had it a couple different places. And I think of the, I can't think of the name of the organization, but the, basically it's like a an organization that handles payroll deduction contributions to organizations. They have this huge book of non-for-profits, right, that you can pick through. It's the same book, by the way, if you shop on Amazon Smile, it's the same. They're partnered with them as well. And you can like take some percentage of your purchases and donate them to a charity. That parent organization, no offense to all of the great organizations that appear in those books, but I would almost guarantee if you donated to those folks, you would not be able to meet the very person that benefited directly from that. So it's a very unique opportunity to actually see the scholarship recipient, you know, if nothing else, lord it over them. No, I'm kidding. But no, yeah, you get to meet the actual recipient and get to see what they're, you know, what they're going to go do with the knowledge you help them be able to have. So, Steve, if you would, one more time, and, and this details, by the way, folks, will be in the show notes, but uh, to give you a good reason to come back to the notes, Steve, what is the email or uh, URL for folks who might be interested in sponsorship? So it's the question for events, E-N-V-E-N-T-S, at Cymru, C-Y-M-I-U.com. Awesome. Well, they'll be uh, on our website. It should be fairly easy to find. Uh, I know they're doing a reorganization right now, but I can't stress this enough. We, we definitely want to bring in new blood, but we want to keep this event running. So sponsorships for scholars and sponsorships generally are absolutely essential. We want more people to come along. So even if you don't have the funding to become a sponsor for any of our programs, please look into uh, coming along. If we can get you along, we absolutely will. It'll be a great experience for you. Awesome. Thank you so much. So final thoughts, Steve, what would you like to say closing out? One of the, the most gratifying parts of an underground economy conference is when you have somebody present on a new cybercrime gang, for example, and they, at the end of the presentation, invariably there'll be a couple of um, nicknames or, or photographs of people that they haven't managed to identify yet. Nine times out of 10, somebody in the back of the room will put their hand out and say, actually, come and speak to me because I've got the missing part of that jigsaw puzzle. And they get together over a beer, they work it out, um, they, they, they essentially solve the crime, and then they come back at the next underground economy conference and they present on how they actually solve the crime. So that's one of the, the kind of unexpected benefits that's come, that have, has come from these events and BS, and that's something that makes me particularly uh, happy. Oh, yeah. No, that's always good. In fact, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe when we had the event in Scotland three or four years ago, whatever, it's been now five years ago, maybe it's been six 
Ooh, okay, so that long ago. Uh, yeah. But when we were at that event, somebody actually stopped a wire transfer while it was happening while we were at the event because the person somehow tied together an investigation with a presentation that was on stage and the person was like in the middle of stopping a wire transfer and they weren't sure and the thing came up on stage at the very same time and it was the person they were doing attribution on and they were able to stop it and send somebody to pick the person up at the bank. I think they told them you could come to the bank and and pick up your check or something. Uh, When they got there, they got arrested instead. Uh, In real time, uh, like over the coffee break. So, but anyway, be a mindful time. What last thoughts do you have, Miranda? So Underground Economy, uh, like I said, favorite event of the year. And the reason that it's so great is because you get to really learn new things and you also get to, I guess, back up thoughts that you already had. So one of the theories, and again, we'll have to talk about this more later, but one of the ideas that me and my colleagues have been developing is the idea that you can really understand cyber criminal organizations and groups a bit like economic firms. So like kind of like companies, they act like companies, they're diversifying, they're getting really good at extracting value in new ways, both technically and non-technically. And that was something that I saw repeated over and over and over at Underground Economy and given and having really concrete examples of this. So Underground Economy was just really great for me. And it's great for anybody, even if you don't have an academic interest in cybercrime, it teaches you new things. It gets you in touch with new people and it gives you a new way of thinking about this area and thinking about how cybercrime is becoming more complex and also how it's becoming more simple in some ways. As the cybercriminals are innovating, then things actually become more efficient, more streamlined, which is might be easier to understand, but more difficult to tackle. So underground economy just gives you a really good way to kind of expose yourself to all of these ideas. So thank you, Team Cymru, for allowing me to come this year. And I would absolutely love to go again. Awesome. Thank you so much. So unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Do the two of you have social media, LinkedIn, things like that? Yep. LinkedIn, blue out more than usual. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we will put those details in the show notes, just in case folks kind of want to link up with you there, follow your research, see what you have going on, or beg you for an invite to next year's conference, Steve, because I know there's plenty Mm -hmm. of folks that are trying to get into the underground economy every year. So we can but yet another way for them to get a hold of you uh, in the show notes. So, uh, but that's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for joining the two of you. I know firsthand from having seen how the underground economy has grown and kind of impacted people over the, whatever it's been, 15 years that I've been attending. I have to say it's incredibly powerful. I always knew it was, at least from my seat, I believe, Steve, uh, you probably also knew it, but it's been very, very good. Miranda, thank you so much for kind of coming and assuring us that, you know, the idea of the program is a good one. And thank you so much for presenting the program so well. Like I said to the listeners, folks, uh, you may it may have sounded like uh, we uh, prepped her for all these great questions, but we really didn't. Those were all legitimate answers. So I mean, I work at Oxford, so I have to, it's all, you can definitely trust me. Totally legit. There we go. There we go. <laughs> so thank you so much, folks. And I hope you tune in next time to our next episode and into the hopefully not too far off future, another episode with Miranda, where we can discuss kind of the, I guess, the socioeconomic impacts of cybercrime or drivers to cybercrime, I guess. So all all of it. We love that. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for listening, folks. And thank you to the two of you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.